This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. I've been asked to speak to you this evening about the existence of God. And I'm going to do that with the help of St. Thomas Aquinas. Thomas was a 13th century Christian theologian whose work also contains a significant amount of philosophy. As a theologian, Thomas took it to be his business to think about God and how other things relate to God. Speaking about God um, and the Christian religion, in the first book of the Summa Contra Gentiles, Thomas writes the following, and this is the number one on your handout. <clears throat> there is a twofold, twofold mode of truth in what we profess about God. Some truths about God exceed all the power of human reason. For example, the truth that God is a trinity. But there are some truths which the natural reason also is able to reach. For example, that God exists, that he is one, and the like. These truths about God have, have even been proved demonstratively by the philosophers, guided by the light of natural reason. There are three points in this text to which I would like to draw your attention. The first is that Thomas tells us that there are some truths about God that are beyond reason's grasp and some that are accessible to reason. Thomas will later say that the former truths are conveyed to us by revelation. The second point is that God's existence is among the truths that Thomas holds we can know by reason. And the third point is that he holds that God's existence can be demonstratively proved. Let me expand a bit on this third point. As Thomas intends it here, a demonstration or demonstrative proof is an argument whose premises show us that the truth of its conclusion is apodictically certain. Or to put it negatively, they show us that the conclusion just can't be false. Thomas distinguishes this kind of argument from one that is only probable. A probable argument gives us reasons to believe that its conclusion is true, but it does not show us that it must be true. Given how mysterious Christians take God to be, and given the number of arguments that have been proposed against his existence, you might find Thomas's claim about our ability to prove God's existence demonstratively pretty surprising. Wouldn't it be more reasonable for him to claim that we can show God's existence to be probable? In fact, despite his apparent optimism with respect to what we can demonstratively prove about God, Thomas is acutely aware of the difficulties we face in inquiring about God by our natural cognitive powers. It is his view that if these powers were all that we had to get us to God, then few people would have any serious knowledge of God, it would take a long time to acquire it, and it would likely suffer from various defects. Because of these problems, Thomas thinks that a supernatural divine revelation is morally necessary. He reasons in the following way. If A, God wills human happiness, as Thomas believes he does, and B, if human beings can only achieve happiness by knowing God, and C, if this knowledge is difficult to come by, then D, God would have to reveal himself to us rather than expect us to come to know him by our own power.
As a Christian, Thomas holds that God has indeed revealed himself to us. He holds that God has revealed not only truths about himself, not only truths about himself that we could never have known by reason, but also truths that we could have known by, uh, that we could know about him by reason if we had made the effort. In other words, Thomas holds that God has revealed both of the kinds of truths that I mentioned earlier, the ones that he talks about in the, the quote from the Summa Contra Gentiles. However, he believes, as do all Christians, that this revelation has not been made to all people, but entrusted to a particular group, the church, whose mission it is to announce and explain this revelation. God's existence is among the truths that Thomas believes have been supernaturally revealed. But it is important to stress that Thomas holds that the revelation of this truth is, as I have said, only morally necessary and not absolutely necessary. What that means is that it was necessary to reveal it only because it is difficult to know with certainty by our natural powers, not because it is impossible to know with certainty by them. Thus, in response to those who would who deny God's existence, Thomas does not think that he is constrained to appeal only to faith and divine revelation. He thinks he can appeal to reason too, but warns us ahead of time that it will be difficult to make the case and that even if we succeed in doing so, few people will be able to appreciate our achievement. Now this last caveat might sound like a clever ploy to try to secure his victory regardless of how strong his argument is. If I tell you that I have proved my case, but that you just can't see it, you might suspect that I'm really just putting you on and trying to find an easy way to win. Perhaps that's what's really going on sometimes, but surely a caveat like Thomas, like Thomas's doesn't always pretend intellectual gaslighting. We can't, for example, expect people with only a minimal education in logic and philosophy, or none at all, to follow a complex philosophical argument and understand all of our technical terminology. Surely, in many instances, we can say that these people, uh, we can say to these people that they that we have proved our case, but they just are unable to see it. To consider scenarios in other disciplines, how many of us are capable of that, of evaluating complex technical proofs in mathematics or physics? Probably very few of us. In any case, I don't think we are justified in assuming that Thomas must be trying to win by dishonest means when he warns us that we might not be able to follow his arguments for God's existence. How then does Thomas think we can argue for God's existence? He proposes a number of different arguments across his writings, more arguments than we can discuss this evening. On one estimate, Thomas proposes a total of 40 arguments for God's existence. Many of these arguments are the same kind of argument presented in different ways. In this paper, I'm going to focus on the first of the five arguments for God's existence that Thomas formulates in question to Article 3 of his Summa Theologiae. These arguments are the so-called five ways. The first way, which is the one I will discuss, is the argument from change. As a preface to, to the argument, I will walk you through some of the basics of Thomas's account of change. Without some familiarity with this account, it will be difficult to grasp the force of the first way, the force of the argument of the first way. 
After my presentation of the argument, I will consider three objections to it. The first I take from Parmenides, who denies the existence of change. The second I take from Antony Flew, who contends that Thomas's first way can only succeed by arbitrarily positing a terminus to the causal series that is supposed to explain change. And the third I take from David Hume, whose objection is similar to Flew's. Hume insists that it is, it is always superfluous to posit a first cause of a causal series. <clears throat> Part one, what is change? So we begin with Thomas's account of change. To say that change, that change is just something, just something being in one condition at one time and in a different condition at a later time is surely not controversial. To put it more formally, I might say that X changes when X is characterized by P at time one and then by Q at time two. It would seem obvious that if it were impossible for X to be characterized by Q, then QX would never be true. It would follow then that for QX to be true, that is for X to be such that X can be characterized by Q, then X must have the capacity for Q. Although we could call this the capacity axiom, I would prefer to call it the potency axiom, since as we will see, potency is an important term in Thomas's account of change. So the potency axiom, which you see on your handout is uh, number three, the potency axiom will state that nothing can change and therefore take on some characteristic that it didn't, at a, um, that it didn't have at a previous time unless that thing has the potency to take on this characteristic. And potency, again, just to be clear, means capacity. Let me try to put what I am saying in less abstract terms. Suppose we're talking about me drinking coffee. At 10 o'clock, I'm not drinking coffee, but later at 11 o'clock, at 11 o'clock, I am drinking coffee. At 10 o'clock, drinking coffee was a potency of mine, but only a potency because at 10 o'clock, I wasn't drinking coffee. But by 11 o'clock, I am drinking coffee, so I have changed. And this change could only occur on account of the potency axiom being true. If this axiom weren't true, I could never have made the transition from not drinking coffee to drinking it, because drinking coffee would be something that's just impossible for me to do. Following Aristotle, Thomas will describe change as the transition of something from potency to act. We can regard this as the more technical description of change. That's number four on your handout. <clears throat> what I've presented so far is a large part of Thomas's account of change, minus the language of act. When I go from not drinking coffee to drinking it, Thomas would say, that I have transitioned from potency to act with respect to drinking coffee. From what I have called the potency axiom, we can see that whatever is going to be an act must have the potency to be an act, whatever that act is. Act doesn't come, about, act doesn't come out of nowhere or from nothing. If it comes to be, act must arise out of a potency. Drinking coffee arises out of the potency to drink coffee. Without this potency, I would never actually drink coffee. It may have occurred to you that 
Um, it may have occurred to you in what I have said about potency and act that no potency is ever a potency in general. Every potency is a potency for some act. Every potency is ordered to an act. A potency that is not a potency for some act would be a potency for nothing and therefore not at all intelligible as a potency. <clears throat> if I tell you that I can do something but add that what I can do is nothing in particular, then my ability to do this thing is really no ability at all. Although it is true that every act that comes about must arise out of a potency, a potency by itself cannot bring this act about. What I'm saying is that a potency is a necessary but not a sufficient condition for an act to come about. Why not? Potency is in a sufficient condition for act for the simple reason that potency as such is not act. Between potency and act, there is a relationship of non-identity. If this weren't so, then every potency would, would always be in act, which is clearly not the case. I have the potency to drink coffee, but I'm not drinking it now. If potency and act were the same, then I would always be drinking coffee which you see is not happening. Act can only come about when the potency for an act is moved to that act by something else already in act. Let's call this the act axiom. The act axiom is complementary to the potency axiom. On the act axiom, nothing that has a potency, this is number six on your handout. <clears throat> on the act axiom, nothing that has a potency for an act can be moved to that act except by something else already in act. My potency to drink coffee is just that, a potency. As mere potency, it won't and can't become act. Something else already in act must intervene for that to occur. Now the uh, potency axiom, act axiom, these are my terms, Thomas doesn't use these terms, but I've, I've um, come up with them just to have a simple way to refer to a kind of complex uh, reality. The act axiom is about a relationship of efficient causality between what is already in act and the thing that it moves from potency to act. We could describe part of the efficient causal process in me in neurobiological terms. My arms and hands and mouth won't act won't act so that I drink the coffee until my brain acts by transmitting signals to them through my spinal cord. If this doesn't happen, then my potency to drink coffee won't be actualized. The brain functions as an efficient cause by transmitting signals that move my arms and hands and mouth from potency to act. Now, efficient causes function in a productive or sustaining way. In producing, they either bring things into existence absolutely or induce change in already existing things. In sustaining, they either keep things in existence or keep some activity going. The same efficient cause can both produce and sustain. In the case of me drinking coffee, my brain is an efficient cause that is involved both in initiating this drinking and in keeping it going. If the brain ceases to act, then I will cease to drink. As I said a moment ago, every potency must be ordered to some act. But is the converse also true? Is every act ordered to a potency? 
It would appear not. Act is not potency and need not include potency in order to be act. We could say more. Whatever is in act, insofar as it is in act, is not and cannot be in potency. Potency, on the other hand, although it is not act, is nevertheless, and to repeat, ordered to act. A potency for nothing isn't a potency. We could sum all of this up by saying that the relationship between potency and act is asymmetrical or non-reciprocal. If this is true, then it is at least conceivable that, that there be some act that hasn't arisen out of a potency and therefore isn't the effect of an efficient cause. Does this contradict what I said earlier when I said that every act that comes to, that comes to be arises out of a potency? It does not. Something that comes to be is something that previously was not and now is. It is the terminus of a change. Some acts are the endpoint of a change, and these acts must arise out of a potency. But there is nothing about act considered in itself that tells us that it must result from a change. So once more, we can say that it is at least conceivable that there be some act that hasn't arisen out of a potency and therefore isn't the effect of an efficient cause. Does such an uncaused act exist? I will come back to this question later. I have not offered you a complete exposition of Thomas's account of change. There is more to his account, but I only propose to cover some of the basics. The basics that I have covered, I think will be enough for us to follow the reasoning in Thomas's argument in the first way. So I'll move on to that argument now. Part two, the first way. Thomas offers this terse introduction to his arguments for God's existence in the Summa. Quod deum esse quinque viis probari potest. That God exists, that God exists, can be proved in five ways. Thomas does not speak here of demonstrating, but only of proving. And proving, probare, can sometimes have a weaker sense than demonstrating does in his writings. But there can be no doubt that here he intends demonstrative proofs, because in the preface to question two and in the two articles preceding article three, which are meant to set it up, he tells us several times that he is concerned with a demonstrative proof. In the quote I have just read you, Thomas says that there are five ways to prove God's existence. Is he telling us that he is only offering suggestions for how demonstrative proofs could be constructed? Or is he telling us that the arguments he is going to make are demonstrative as formulated? Actually, I think there is a third possibility that is more likely. Namely, that Thomas would tell us that if we understand his terms and follow his reasoning, we will see that the argument in the five ways or in the first way is demonstrative. Thomas says of the first way, which is the argument we will be looking at, that it is the manifestio via, the more manifest or evident way. I take him to mean by this that of the five arguments in Article 3, it is the only one that more people are likely to find compelling. If I'm right about this, let's not forget, as I mentioned a moment ago, that an argument can be successful 
even if its success isn't apparent to us. So if Thomas regards the first way as the most compelling of his five arguments in Article 3, that doesn't mean that he believes that that its success stands or falls on whether we do, in fact, find it compelling. An argument could be successful and compelling to many people, or it could be successful but not compelling to many people. I have called the first way the argument from change. The Latin word that Thomas uses here is motus, which can be translated as motion or change. I prefer to translate it as change since in contemporary English, motion usually refers to a particular kind of change, change of place. But Thomas's argument holds for any type of change, not just motion. So what is Thomas's argument in the first way? I'm going to form, formalize and rephrase it, but I think that this formalizing and rephrasing are still faithful to the original argument. And this is number seven on the handout. <clears throat> so I'm just going to, to read those um, premises and conclusion. First premise, change occurs. Second premise, change is the transition of X from potency to act. Third premise, insofar as X is in potency, X can't be in act. Fourth premise, something else already in act, Y, needs to intervene to change X. Fifth premise, whatever changes is caused to change by another. Sixth premise, this causal series must have a first cause that introduced the change that characterizes the series. Seventh premise, this first cause is not changed by another. Eighth premise, this first cause is God. Conclusion, God exists. From our discussion of change, it it shouldn't be hard to see what justifies the first five premises. But you might wonder what um, you might wonder about premise six and eight. How can they be justified? With respect to premise six, consider the following, and this is number eight on your handout. If every member of the causal series is changed by another, is a changed changer then no change would occur in the series because everything in the series would point beyond itself to another that is the cause of its change, which would mean that no member of the series could have introduced change into the series. Now, if no change had been introduced into the series, then no change would occur in the series. But change does occur in the series. So there must be a member of the series that introduced change into it but isn't itself changed by another. Therefore, this member of the series would be the first cause of the change in the series, and this is what premise six states. We should have no problem with accepting premise seven because it just states what must be true of the first cause as first. It is not changed by another. If it were, it wouldn't be the first cause. But why does Thomas think that he can identify the first cause with God, as he does in premise eight. Later in the Summa, Thomas will show that his first co- that this first cause must be completely lacking in potency. In other words, it must be pure act. It is not difficult to explain why this must be so. 
If the first cause does not transition from potency to act in order to cause change in other things, then it must already be in act and always have been in act. Insofar as the first cause is in act, it is not in potency because potency is not act. So the first cause must be pure act. But whatever is pure act must also have certain other attributes. Let's consider some of them. This is um, number nine. The first cause must be unchanging because potency is required for change, but there is no potency in the first cause. If we understand time to be a measurement of change, which does seem to be the common concept of time, then the first cause, because it doesn't change, must be, must be outside of time. That is, it must be eternal. The first cause must be immaterial, because bodies change, but the first cause doesn't change. Because it is immaterial, the first cause transcends the physical universe. The only thing that could limit act would be potency, but there is no potency in the first cause, and therefore it cannot be limited, which means that it is infinite. There would not be any real distinction between one pure act and another pure act, because they could only differ if one were in potency in some way. But in that case, it wouldn't be pure act. Evidently, then, there can be only one pure act, and so also only one of this first cause. If there is only one first cause, then it is the first cause of all change, and likewise, the first cause of whatever happens in the physical universe. We could derive other attributes of the first cause. In any event, a reality that has all of the attributes that I have listed, um, unchanging, eternal, immaterial, transcends the physical universe, infinite, there's only one of it, it's responsible for all the change in the physical universe. Anything that has those, all those attributes um, is what many people would call God. It is certainly what Christians call God. Consequently, there is good reason to identify the unchanging first cause of change with God, which is what Thomas does in premise eight. Thus, if the first way proves the existence of an unchanging first cause of change, we can say that it proves the existence of God. Part three, objections. Of course, there are many people who would deny that the first way proves God's existence. So let's consider some objections to the argument. Some people might be persuaded by Parmenides that change is an illusion. If change is an illusion, then the first premise of the first way would be false and Thomas's argument unsound. Parmenides takes this, his surprising position on change because he believes that change implies something that is quite impossible. And that is that being, being can come from non-being. In Parmenides' view, for change to take place, something must come into being that didn't previously exist. And if that happens, then being would have to come from non-being. But because that can't happen, Parmenides concludes that change must be an illusion. I agree with Parmenides that being cannot come from non-being, 
And I agree that when change occurs, something comes into being that didn't previously exist. But if we consider Thomas's account of change, he never says that what didn't previously exist comes into being from non-being. He says, on the contrary, that what comes into being, act, comes to be from a potency and from something else already in act. Thomas's account shows us, then, that we can affirm that change occurs without also having to concede the absurdity of something coming from nothing. Given that Thomas's first way assumes his account of change, we can put aside the Parmenidean objection to it. This brings us to Antony Flew. Prima facie, Flew's objection may seem stronger than the Parmenidean objection. Whether or not it really it whether or not it really is, it too fails against the first way. According to Flew, each cause in the causal series in the first way must itself be caused by another cause. <clears throat> but when Thomas gets to God, Flew tells us, he arbitrarily exempts him from this necessity and declares him to be the first cause and therefore to be without a cause. Flew, however, is off base here. There is no premise in Thomas's argument that states that every cause in the series must be caused. What Thomas does say is that whatever changes must have a cause. He also says that it is impossible for everything in the causal series of the first way to be caused because if that were the case, nothing could have introduced change into the series, and so there would be no change. Thus, if there is change, and there is, there must be a first uncaused cause of change. There is nothing arbitrary in this reasoning. But Flew is not done. He commends to us another objection that he finds in David Hume. Hume's target is not the first way per se, but Flew believes that Hume's argument can, um, I'm sorry, Flew believes that Hume's argument can nevertheless be applied to the first way because Hume takes aim at an argument that is quite similar to it. In any causal series, Hume observes, there is a cause that accounts for each effect. This, Hume supposes, is the very idea of a causal series. But if each effect in the series is accounted for, Hume points out, it is superfluous to add a cause alleged to be first of the series as a whole. In essence, this human objection attempts to refute the first way by an appeal to the principle of parsimony, or what is more popularly known as Occam's razor. The point of the objection is that a first cause is superfluous to the causal series in the first way. Change can be explained without it. In other words, the first cause or in other words, the first way doesn't ineluctably lead us to the first cause and therefore doesn't prove God's existence. Should we concede the human objection? Indeed, we should not. The problem with this objection is that it passes over the fact that no cause in the series apart from the first, apart from the first cause fully accounts for its effect. Apart from the first cause, the various causes in the series only partially account for their effects. So the first cause isn't superfluous, but truly necessary to account for the series as a whole. 
we can conclude then that the Humean objection also fails. This evening, I have tried to show you with the help of St. Thomas Aquinas that the occurrence of change provides us with evidence for God's existence. I hope I have been successful in doing that. I suspect that some of you have other objections besides the ones that I have considered. If you do, I would be happy to hear them during the Q&A. Thank you.